A communications disruption can only mean one thing. This podcast. Hey there, everybody. I just wanted to offer a few words on the current global situation before diving into the episode today. I want to start off by saying that my thoughts are with everyone affected by COVID-19 and with everyone who might know someone affected by the virus. Uh, It's pretty scary how much of a toll coronavirus has taken on all of our lives on many different levels and many different forms. With that said, though, I'm going to adapt this quote from Poe and Rise of Skywalker and say that coronavirus wins when it makes us think we're alone. But you're not alone, and we are not alone through this. Even if you're not personally affected by these events, this is a perfect time to become more available to a loved one, do a group video call, reach out to someone you haven't spoken to in a while, have a digital game night or something. Even if we have to take steps to socially distance ourselves, that doesn't mean we can't be there for each other. And my best hope is that as a community around this podcast and elsewhere, we can be there for each other in this time. So stay strong. We will overcome this. So without further ado, here is episode six of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode six of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in legends and canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 11 and 12, and I'm joined today by my good friend, Samuel Sturmer. Sturm, how are you doing today, man? I'm not too bad, thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, man. I just, uh, if you could give a quick background um, on your relationship with Star Wars and with Thrawn as a character and Thrawn as this book specifically, could you just give a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I got into Star Wars when I was about seven, I'd say, when my parents got me the original trilogy on DVD. And I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with all the characters there. And then from then, I just, it was the old Lego Star Wars set, so it just kept me going <laughs> and everything. And then more recently, I've got into the novel side of things. I didn't actually know there was the extent of the writing side of it. Um, and last year, I started with the Legends Thrawn trilogy um, and got into Thrawn there. And since reading that, I absolutely loved the character and so decided to jump into the the canon trilogy to extend my knowledge of the mastermind that is Thrawn. Yeah, it's, it's such a wonderfully crafted character by Timothy Zahn. Whichever trilogy that you read, um, I, I know, I think most of my guests have first been introduced to Thrawn in the Legends trilogy, and mm. I'm on The Last Command right now, I'm finishing it up, and I haven't been disappointed at all with how he's been portrayed in that trilogy, or in the uh, canon trilogy either. Um, just as a kind of your own opinion, do you think that given your first exposure to Thrawn in the Legends trilogy and now having dove into the canon trilogy, do you think that Timothy Zahn was able to still hold on to the integrity of Thrawn as a character between the uh, trilogies? Yeah, absolutely. When starting this canon trilogy, I sort of saw that he was still sort of learning his ways compared to the Legends trilogy where he's sort of this grand admiral that knows had all the experience with the empire and everything but Zahn still managed to make it so that he is still thrawn you know he's able to just work things out and be an absolute mastermind so it's very very well done yeah i'm always impressed with the you know whichever trilogy you're reading his ability to see the bigger picture and that's also being you know i've also seen that in rebels so far and it's just Again, just time and time again, I'm just reminded of how he has probably become my favorite character in all of Star Wars. I think that, just comparing the two trilogies, I haven't really been disappointed at all with how uh, Timothy Zahn's been able to transition his character, um, you know, from whether it's post-Return of the Jedi to now between episodes three and four and finding out his origin with the Empire. So it's been a good read, and we have some really good parts some really interesting chapters to break down today. So I'm going to give my summary for chapter 11, and then we can dive right into it. Okay, perfect. Thrawn and Colonel Yularen deduce that the Tabanagas is being used by rebels led by a cunning insurgent calling himself Night Swan. 
Moff Gotti threatens Arinda Price with arrest if she doesn't take the false data card back to Senator Rankin. Left with no choice, Price does as he says. Infuriated at the blowback caused by the recent events, Rankin fires Price and revokes her apartment and airspeeder. Thrawn is cleared of all charges by the court-martial. While Eli ponders his relationship with Thrawn, he is stopped by an aide to Moff Gotti. She offers Eli a lieutenant promotion to an inner rim fleet, though Eli refuses when he realizes the offer is part of a plan to take Thrawn down. Meanwhile, Price strikes a deal with a local citizen's assistance office. She will work for a week without pay to prove she is worthy of a job there. So, Sturm, <laughs> we both agreed off mic that chapter 11, it goes on for a while. <laughs> it sure but does, yeah. it's, it's, It was probably, I'm going to be honest and say, it's probably my favorite chapter that uh, of the book so far. We get a lot of information about Thrawn and Eli's situation as well as Price's situation. It's, it's a really, it's packed with a lot among all those characters. And we learn a lot about Eli, uh, as we'll come to discuss. And we also learn about a lot about Arinda Price's resilience. But first things first, we're, now, we're back in the Alessandria Grand Ballroom, where you know, Thrawn, Eli, and Colonel Yularen are mingling with other powerful politicians and military officers. And Thrawn, Eli, and Yularen are discussing amongst themselves that Thrawn and Yularen had been able to deduce that if Signy had just been meaning to sell the Tibana, that there was another planet in the system that they had narrowed down the Dromedar's location to that was like a known source of Tibana. So if you just wanted to sell it, they would have just added more to their stock from that planet. But since that wasn't the case, they made an interesting point that they could infer that he was using the Tibana to fuel weaponry, which I thought was maybe a hint at potentially the beginning of Rebel Insurgents. Did you get that same vibe from that part? I wasn't too sure what they were entirely meaning, um, but they were certainly hinting at that sort of idea, yeah. Yeah, kind of like the, any kind of hint that there were insurgents that they had been dealing with, because I think in a previous chapter when they were still uh, on the Blood Crow with Captain Virgilio before Rossi's time that they had dealt with smugglers and stuff like that, but... Th I think this might be the first time that we hear about insurgents and mm. rebels. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And we had this funny moment because Thrawn says that he's been doing a lot of profiling work to find out if there's been patterns and connections amongst the insurgents that have been popping up. And Eli's asking, whoa, <laughs> when have you been doing all of this? And Thrawn says, you sleep more than I do. <laughs> and it's he's not even meaning it in a humorous way. He's just saying it as a matter of fact. But I think that's just so funny where it's like, yeah, Eli's got to get good. You know, yeah. he's sleeping on the clock, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, this Thrawn guy, he just stays up all night working and everything whilst these ensigns are just you know sleeping and not doing anything i did find Probably that hitting snooze funny. a few times yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so thron's research and filtering and, and profiling had led them to a name night swan being behind mm -hmm. the tabana cylinders events and I think it's hinted at Night Swan being Signy, I think, because immediately after they hear the name Night Swan, Eli reflects, because this scene is in Eli's point of view, mm -hmm. he reflects on how Signy had escaped the blockade that Admiral Wiscovis had put around uh, the planet Uba when they found the Dromadar. So I, I don't know if that's just me making a connection there, if we're led to assume that Night Swan is Signy. What do you think about that? Because that's what I gathered from that little bit. Yeah, whereas I didn't actually pick that up. I thought that Night Swan was going to be this tough guy that had all these little minions doing the work for him. So I thought that Signy was potentially one of his like sort of minions that did the Tabanagas pirating for him. It could be true. But yeah, I, I didn't really see that. But then again, you've mentioned it now and it could potentially be that, yeah. What I was thinking is that there's just a juxtaposition from... The paragraph talking about Night Swan and keeping an eye out for him, immediately transitioning then mm. to Eli thinking about how Signy had slipped between Thrawn's fingers and Admiral Wiscovis's fingers, where, I mean, maybe there is no connection, but I just thought that was an interesting juxtaposition of paragraphs there. I guess Signy is now on all of their minds because then Yularen gets a contact on his data pad where they learn that 12 of the Tabana cylinders that they had recovered had actually been emptied. Yeah. Or they had been empty, despite being static locked, and everyone's confused because there's no evidence that they had gone through the back of the hole, like Thrawn had suggested might be a strategy to get 
to free the cylinders. But now they have no idea how more than half of these cylinders were already empty, which makes an already, I don't know if it's fair to call it a dire situation because Thrawn had been able to save the crew and save the ship. But you know, it takes an already kind of precarious situation and makes it a little bit worse. But I think, and I don't know what your thoughts are on Colonel Yularen, but I really like this guy where he's, you know, given that news, he's still able to find a silver lining of sorts where he's saying to Thrawn, all right, yeah, look, you, that might be the case, but you still saved the ship. You still saved almost half of the Tabana. You saved the crew. You caught most of the pirates. Where I feel like other Imperial officers, especially at a high rank like Yularen, might have found that as a reason to kind of take a dig at Thrawn. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what sort of Thrawn is thinking. He's realised that this could potentially be one of his sort of first mistakes. And he's already in a precarious situation. And all these high-ranking officers are now going to think that he's made the situation even worse. But as we've seen, Yularen is sort of trying to make the best out of that situation and i don't i don't know whether it's the same guy but was colonel yularen in the clone wars he was yeah the the same guy (laughs) it is the same guy yeah i did think that but then now he's sort of on the opposite side of sort of goody baddie range you know yeah, because I was talking with one of my friends. He had reached out after listening to the most recent episode because I was noting that Yularen seemed to be a bit different from the other Imperial officers because he's there trying to support Thrawn, trying to give Thrawn credit rather than trying to strip him of it. And he pointed out that my friend pointed out that maybe that's a remnant of kind of his personality when he served because he he fought on the side of the Republic uh, with the Jedi. Maybe that's kind of like a leftover quality from him having served with the Jedi where he's able to still have that honor and have that nobility where he can still see through the veil of imperial jealousy and conceit and he's still able to find the silver lining. As he says, to always consider half a loaf far superior yeah. to no loaf at all. Because um, yeah. that is the same guy. He, he was in the Clone Wars and yeah. Now he he fought on the side of the Republic and now he's fighting on the side of the Imperials. But you know he he definitely is set apart from the rest of the Imperial officers that we are introduced to and exposed to. Yeah, it's certainly compared to the previous ones that we've come across. Yeah, yeah, especially Rossi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so Thrawn, like you said, this kind of is one of his first major mistakes because he had thought he had been in control of the situation where. He, as soon as Signy encountered them on the Dromadar, he knew that something was wrong. He could he he knew who Signy was before he even pulled the blaster on them in the first place. He just based on things that he could deduce from Signy's appearance and the way his explanations. But then we get this fact that yes, yeah, Signy was actually somehow a step ahead of Thrawn, which we haven't been able to say much about anyone uh, until this point. And I thought this was a cool part where Eli, he's observing Thrawn's reaction to this, and he gets these shivers down his spine, and I quote, Some of the myths talked about what happened when Chiss were defeated or outsmarted. None of those stories ended well. I just thought that was a really ominous bit where this is not going to be the end of of Thrawn and Signy, is it? Yeah, Signy is now deep within Thrawn's mind, and he is going to get back at this guy do everything he can to outsmart him and prove that he's sort of the the better warrior in this situation. Yeah, and I I wonder if there is, because if we're talking about any any other Imperial officer, they would be out there to kind of like prove themselves to be better. But I wonder if that's the case with Thrawn. I I don't think he's in it for any kind of glory or recognition. He just wants the results, right? Yeah. He, you know, and I think he might have mentioned that in Rebels where he had been speaking to another Imperial officer and was like, yeah, I don't care about the glory. I just care about getting results for my Emperor. Either way, though, I think whether he's in it for glory or not, just the fact that there's still like a loose end with Signy that was he mm-hmm. was able to wriggle away, that Thrawn just wants to make sure that from a statistical, strategical, tactical <laughs> point that there are no loose ends. So I think that's uh, setting up to be a neat little showdown because from what we gathered from Signy so far, he's very similar to Thrawn in his ability to think tactically, uh, I think. So interested to see how that plays out. And this scene ends with this interesting little quote from Yularen. He's saying, and I quote, if the Navy decides to toss you out, the ISB would be more than happy to take you. 
I dare say you'd look good in white, end quote. And I thought that was some awesome foreshadowing. Yeah. And maybe Lauren has been reading the books too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The nice white out- outfit, yeah. Yeah, the trademark white Grand Admiral's out- outfit that we know Thrawn's going to end up in. You know, if you look at the cover of the book, you can see that much. But I thought that was a little yeah. funny moment right there. So now we find ourselves in this full chapter. This is it's so good. We find ourselves back with Arinda Price and she's still in Gadi's suite, and she's asking, you know, what the hell is going on? And Gadi hints at this deeper scheme going on between him and Ranking, where he's accusing Ranking of planting false data in his computer, and now he's handing off a data card to Price to give to Ranking that I don't know if, if it has any kind of false data in return, but there's clearly some kind of beef between them. And he threatens her, saying that if you don't just go back deliver the data card as normal, I'll have you arrested for possession of drugs. And Price asks Gotti how she knows that he'll keep his word, and he responds with, and I quote, Why wouldn't I? You're a very small fish, not worth the time and effort of gutting. And I thought that, you know, just as we were talking about how Thrawn and Signia are set up for some back and forths, maybe this is setting Price and Gadi up because I'm betting that she's going to want to have the last laugh here where it's, he's kind of setting himself up, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. She's going to work as hard as she can to make sure that Gadi goes down for what he's done right there. Yeah, because uh, like I mentioned in the last episode, this whole thing is that she's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. She wasn't the yeah. initial target, but now she's got no choice. That scene between them ends with... (laughs) uh, There's a couple of moments in these two chapters where there's this very imperial moments Mm -hmm. where, and I quote, Gotti smiled a tight, bitter, evil smile. Welcome to politics, Miss Price. Welcome to the real Coruscant. And I thought that was just very imperial of him where, yeah, like you had said, where Price has worked so hard to get where she is and she'll probably work so hard to take him down. We're seeing a very steep fall from grace in this chapter aren't we yeah especially because she was working with this top senator and everything to then being sort of a mule for him and then being in the wrong place at the wrong time and it's slowly just downward spiraling from there she has tried so hard getting her place within Coruscant to then have it all taken away over such a small thing is is sort of sad to hear, really. It's so interesting because the more that I've watched Rebels, we are introduced to Price in that show, and in a show that focuses on like the good guys, the Rebels, Price is obviously considered a, one of the villains there. But now, you know, in reading a book that's centered around the antagonists of Star Wars, I think that you can't help but feel bad because as we continue through these scenes and we just see how she's quickly losing a lot you can't help but feel bad for her. You know, we do know that she is an imperial and she's doing what we'd expect from people rising within imperial politics where she, you know, she seems very ruthless and just just tirelessly working to gain power and status. But now are we at fault here for feeling bad for one of the villains? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? They're all this imperial side of things, but you still feel that you can connect with certain people and like them better than others. Um, and it's a great sort of thing that Zahn does within his writing that makes you feel empathy and sympathy towards these characters who are technically the villains. It's very well done. Yeah, very well done indeed. And just with how he develops them further, and uh, I, I think it's it's intentional. And I think that when we're invested in these characters for a book, you know, you, it, it's just it's natural. You know, you get to empathize more, like you were saying, with these characters, whichever side they're on. Because it does continue to, to fall for Price, where you know, she delivers the card to ranking his desk, and she gets back to Driller's apartment. And uh, I'm just going to read a section from the book right here, and I quote, She lay awake on the daybed for the next three hours, waiting for the symptoms to fade, wondering what was on the card, wondering what it would do, wondering what she would do. She had no answers. And I thought that it must be really hard for Price, seeing as she's so used to being in control. And we've gathered that from her character in the book so far, where she is always kind of like Thrawn, but in the political game, one step ahead. She always has the longer game in mind, and she's always used to kind of having this control around her situation, where even if she's giving ground in some situations, she she knows that it's all leading towards this greater plan. But now she's 
she's kind of just taken all these punches and doesn't know what to do. And it, it must be really hard for her, must, uh, mustn't it? Yeah, she's had so much thrown at her. Um, and as you said, she's used to being in control. So now that she has sort of no idea what to do, she's stuck in this state that, yeah, she doesn't know what to do and doesn't know how to get herself out of this situation. Um, and it sort of really hurts her long-term plans that she had for becoming one of the high-level elite uh, within Corazon. Yeah, and and it, she continues to take some more hits and the, the scene transitioning because yeah, this is the next day where apparently there has already been consequences from the data card that God, that, that um, Price had delivered to Ranking because Ranking calls together his staff to his office and he's delivering some news that allegations had risen of uh, financial and corporate discrepancies from his office and he'll be doing a lot of traveling between systems and back to Lothal to try and defuse the situation and that because of the limits to his funding in this time he's gonna have to close down some offices and no surprise Price's office is one of those and as he ends the meeting he asks Price to remain behind and this next bit like, if Price hadn't already just been kind of crumbling, then this next bit between her with her interaction mm-hmm, yeah. with ranking is is so good. Where and I quote: Arenda had expected to see anger in his eyes. She saw only ice. She expected him to shout or curse. His voice, when he finally spoke, was soft and infinitely more frightening. I hope you're proud of yourself. I didn't have a choice, Arenda said, silently cursing the shaking that had suddenly afflicted her voice. She'd promised herself that she would match him tone for tone, but an imperial senator in full-blown anger was more intimidating than she'd expected. And that's just such a menacing moment where we've seen this, I I wouldn't say like kind of pleasant relationship between Ranking and Price, but, you know, they were on good terms. They had an efficient working relationship where, you know, it was working out where she was winning in her game you know moving up the ladder getting more connections and he was content with her being his aide and to see someone like price crumbling here just speaks so many volumes you know props to ranking on getting a hundred score on his imperial intimidation factor but from a personality of price where like you know she she's just been so commanding and so in control and she's just in free fall yeah she was not expecting what ranking was doing she was expecting him to be really angry, shout at him and everything. And then when he's come back all soft, but really sort of looking angry, she doesn't know what to do. And obviously she just cracks and feels the all the pressure coming down. Um, and suddenly she feels like a really small person compared to this high-ranking senator. Yeah, exactly. And we'll get a little bit about that feeling when she leaves the office because, you know, he ends up firing her, taking her apartment, her airspeeder. She's lost everything um, right now. And in in Coruscant, you know, a big city planet (laughs) where now she's just this, like you said, this very small person now. These next two chapters are very telling in how she responds to adversity and overcoming it. And this is she's hit a brick wall of adversity right here where you know he dismisses her and you know clearly i'm I'm guessing this is not going to be the end (laughs) just as it wasn't the end between gaudi and price as my guess i'm guessing that she is going to also get back at him now but um i think that there's this well-written little passage here from zan where she's kind of has this all crashing down on her when she leaves the office and i quote when she'd first arrived she'd found the view exotic and exciting talking about coruscant later it had become familiar and commonplace Now it was ominous. Billions of humans and aliens were crammed together out there, all jockeying for the same jobs and the same living space, and Orinda was now one of them. And she'd been content in her steady rise to power. It wasn't a, you know, she was playing the long game. It wasn't kind of quick gains super fast. She was content with the pace that it was going. And yeah, now it's all crashing down. And, you know, she's she's kind of taken a tumble into the undercities, as they might say, which they probably don't say. But, um, and, and yeah, th- I guess we're going to find out a lot, a lot about how she responds to adversity. And one of her responses, kind of contemplating what Ranking had said, where it's like, you were a fool to even trust me, was, you know, maybe the 
trick to surviving on Coruscant, as she's thinking, was to never trust anyone. And she was so quick to accept that, where she knows that, okay, if I'm not supposed to rely or trust on anyone, I'm going to do that. And do you think that's the right thing for her to do? Should she be reaching out to for support from her friends in the situation? Should Or should she be trying to take those steps to distance herself and be like, all right, I can't trust anyone. This is me. Uh, this is all about what I can do in this situation. I would say that she does need to be careful and not trust the elite, the ones that she looks up to and sort of wants to become. In terms of her friends, she she has to be wary, obviously, but I reckon that she doesn't need to completely shut them off. And in a place like Coruscant with the politics going on and the dirty understreets, that she needs some friends, she needs some people to have her back. Um, and so cutting them off and going at it alone is probably not the best idea. So I would say that she does need to sort of keep her friends close but be wary and then maybe not trust the the elite as we've seen so far since two of them have already sacked her off within a day within a day and kind of like how we saw thrawn having his first mistake price kind of recognizes that she had made a very big mistake in thinking that she could trust ranking where clearly she hasn't seen the movies or read the books where she knows that you know can't trust Imperials. <laughs> but judging by her reaction about making that decision to not rely or trust anyone now, she's learned that the hard way, that she can't just trust an Imperial politician or any of the Imperial elite, that once you get to that level of the ladder, it's all about climbing over the next person to get more power for yourself. So it'll be interesting to see how she can rebound. And you know, she's, her mind is already in gears about moving forward where she's asking Driller and Wahir for the address of the nearest citizen's assistance office. So we will revisit that. Mm-hmm. But we're taken to the end of uh, Thrawn's court-martial where he's cleared of all charges. And Eli also noted that they... Um, and I quote, specifically made note of Captain Rossi's pettiness. And I was glad to hear that because I yeah. did not think that Imperial High Command or the court martial would, uh, you know, I, I didn't think that they would recognize something like that where, you know, we kind of expect Imperial officers at that point to be petty and for them to be like, yeah, no, she was petty. I, I'm glad that they did. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was not expecting that. Yeah, that was, that was a good little sort of nod to how Rossi is actually sort of, yeah, one of those petty officers that is wanting to sort of look down on the alien such as Thrawn. So I'm glad that she had her justice, (laughs) that justice was served against her. Um, So as they're walking to find out their next assignment, Thrawn and Eli are walking, we get some really great thoughts from Eli here, where we get a lot of his internal thoughts and monologues here about his relationship with Thrawn. Because we'd been wondering if if he was content where he was, because he's been Thrawn's aide for, you know, the past couple of assignments. Um, you know, he's he's kind of been tied to Thrawn, where Thrawn's this rising star, but Eli's just continually being his, you know, his aide, his translator. Not a lot of recognition. He's obviously not in the career field that he initially wanted. And he's thinking about this, where he's thinking that as Thrawn's subordinate, you know, whatever the result of the court-martial was, it was bound to affect Thrawn more than it was ever going to affect him. Where he'd wondered, if Thrawn had been convicted, would he have been sent back to his supply officer path? And he's thinking from there, and I quote, and if he had, would he have been pleased or disappointed? And he's proceeding to think about... You know, how he didn't want any of this to, mm-hmm. to... He didn't ask for any of this in the first place, but then he's also thinking about his adventures with Thrawn, and he doesn't know what he wants. If he's content with, and I quote, a calm, safe pathway that utilized his talents and skills to the maximum potential and took him to the top of his chosen field, or a path where he nearly always felt like a fish flopping on the shore, but where he got to see true genius in action, he still didn't have an answer. What did you think about his thoughts there? Yeah, he is still, you can still tell that he's conflicted between the pathway he's on now and the pathway that he's always sort of wanted to be, being um, that supply officer. And I sort of took it that he's he's actually starting to see the, the good side of working with Thrawn, but he still likes to reminisce on what he could have been doing 
and mm. what he would probably prefer to be doing. But as he says, he's gets to work with Thrawn with this amazing mind. Um, and I think slowly he's starting to accept that and enjoy it a bit more. That is, uh, that's true, because he's starting to realize that, you know, he's working alongside a genius, you know, and this is very much turning out to be like a Sherlock, you know, a Watson looking (laughs) at Sherlock type deal. But I kind of thought, like, if he's even thinking about this choice in the first place, if he would be happy, you know, with with case A or case B, you know, because I guess as the reader, we can have our own thoughts as to what Eli's thinking. You know, I guess at this point in the book, it's maybe convenient that he doesn't know what he's happier with. But I, my thoughts were that if he's even thinking if he would be happier elsewhere, maybe that's kind of like confirmation that he would be happier if he was back on his chosen track. Yeah. But maybe that he's starting to see the value of not being where he wants, but seeing where it could take him. He is starting to realise that the route that he's on now is likely to take him in places that he is not expecting. It's not what he signed up for. But yes, he is still thinking about his old past and, and what he could have been. And potentially, yes, he could have been happier in that situation. But since that route is not offered to him, he's not able to tell which route he would prefer which is why he is still conflicted the way he is and that makes me wonder because he is still conflicted he's still thinking about what could have been you know what would have been and do you think that that's one of the reasons that he's not able to see maybe just how good of a situation he's in now or the val the true value that he's starting to see the true value but he doesn't see the full picture do you think that he would see the bigger picture and the full picture if he's just able to let go or he's like all right my shipping path, that, that career, is it's not going to happen and there's nothing I can do about that. Let's focus all my attention on the now and where Thrawn is taking me now. Do you think that he would be able to see the bigger picture if he just took a step back and let go? Yeah, for sure, because you have the old saying where the more effort you put in, the more you get out of it. And at the moment, he is not putting that much effort into the job that he has. He's sort of just gliding along behind Thrawn. And if he decides to let go and and put more effort in and make a change in his mindset, I think he would enjoy it and realise the opportunities that he actually has. And it would make him sort of smarter and more able to enjoy life. But it's it's so hard for him because in this next part Thrawn's kind of asking into his thoughts if his parents still had their private shipping business and Eli's there thinking about how his parents are really unhappy with how his career has just come to a standstill and he has this thought and I quote it had gotten so bad that he no longer looked forward to their letters and calls and as much as it's so easy for me and you to be, you know, to stand back and say, Eli, wake up, man. Look, look past your, you know, you can't keep looking back. You have to look forward. And at the now, it's hard. You know, he's, Thrawn's relationship with him is having, you know, it's affected his education. It's affected his career. And it's also affecting his relationship with his family, which I think is, you know, continuing the whole hashtag poor Eli. It's, it's sad, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's really in the sort of by himself the only real person he has is Thrawn, who is not the person that he really wants to be with. And yeah, having the sort of hate from his family for working with Thrawn, it's a really tough position for him to be in. And you, as a reader, you do feel sorry for him. And I think that it's interesting because you're right. The only kind of quote-unquote friend that Eli has is Thrawn. And it's also the same in reverse, that the only quote-unquote friend that Thrawn has is Eli. And Thrawn probably realizes that. And I I think it's just a matter of when for Eli to to open his eyes to that, where he's like, you know what, I might not like this, but it's about how I can make the most of the, the the only person that he can probably trust. You know, we don't want him to fall into the same pit as Price, mm. where, you know, she made a, a, a mistake of trusting the wrong person, where we want Eli to fully trust the right person. So th- they're talking about Dunium and how uh, they're remarking that the price has gone up since the Imperial Navy had started building more ships, and Thrawn is skeptical here. He's asking Eli to see how many ships are being constructed relative to how much Dunium is required for them to be built, and also relative to how much Dunium is being purchased and collected by the Empire. 
and Thrawn suspects that there might be something more at play here. As he says, some other project, something large and unannounced. And I'm like, oh snap, <laughs> some foreshadowing to the Death Star. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought, yeah. Yeah, and Thrawn's onto it. Um, so that, it's cool to get these little droplets here and there about, yep, yeah, it's, it's still there. It's being made. Yep. Um, We're in Star Wars. We are in Star Wars. If no one knew until now, <laughs> can confirm. Exactly. Um, so they're about to walk through this door at the end of the hallway to find out their new assignment, and Eli is stopped by this woman named Culper, and she's an aide to Moff Gotti. Uh, Thrawn goes through the door, leaving them both together. And at first, uh, when when she identified herself as working with Gotti, I was like, "No, no, no, red flag!" Like, you know, you're a <laughs> this bad is not good. Already, yep. <laughs> yeah, you're a, you're a bad woman. <laughs> but Eli doesn't know that. You know, he 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 says that he's heard of Gotti, doesn't know much about him, so he doesn't know what we know. Um, <laughs> So basically, Culper is offering him this position to an interim defense fleet, where he'd be promoted instantly to lieutenant, and a promotion to cap uh, to captain and uh, commanding his own vessel would not be too far ahead from that. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it's such a unfortunate timing where he's thinking about if this is the right path for him, if he wants to move on to something yeah. greater, or if he wants to stay stagnant with Thrawn. And then Culper answers the call and is like, actually, I can offer <laughs> you what you might want. Just and and Eli... Exactly, because he, he's thinking multiple times here where he's trying to neutrally downplay it. You know, props to him, but then it starts to creep in on him, you know, being a captain of his own ship. Mm. And what did you, what did you gather from this whole interaction? Uh, it instantly brought alarm bells ringing to me. It's like, this is certainly not a call for promoting Eli. This has got some other meaning. But obviously Eli doesn't know that. And so he's getting this thinking, oh, I could now take my position even further and become sort of high ranking within the Imperials. Yeah. And it's a difficult situation for him, especially as he's been thinking about whether this is the right way of life that he's wanting. And it really scuppers his his brain and he has to sort of think about it. I think it's so interesting where he is given the chance to take a position of power. You know, it's it's not as if like, oh, you want to become an admiral and it's, it, you know, it's, you want to become a lieutenant and then a captain. So it's, you know, it's not the end all be all of imperial naval ranks, but it's still you know, he's he's just stayed an ensign all mm-hmm. this time, and this is a perfect chance for him to take this position of power. And I think it's a really interesting insight into Eli's character, where he he has the chance to take power for himself here. He has a chance to change the course of his career and be in a position where he can control something. And he's hesitant. You know, he he's trying to downplay it. He's being neutral about it. And he's although he is considering like, oh, that would actually be really nice. I think it says a lot about Eli's humility, where even where Culper's hand is outstretched for him to take yeah. what she's offering, and he could do that. All he has to do is just reach out and grab this opportunity, but even then, he's hesitant, and I think that says a lot about Eli's character. Yeah, I, I really sort of knew then that in his mind, he still has a, a loyalty to Thrawn, and he doesn't want to throw away that for an opportunity that he doesn't know that much about but yeah it really showed him having these feelings of loyalty and friendship towards Thrawn that he doesn't want to do anything to hurt that yeah and you know maybe he's starting to come to terms with the reality of of his relationship with Thrawn where you know he's he's not so easily going to just abandon that and you know Culper kind of shoots herself in the foot uh, where Eli starts to realize the the reality of the situation where Culper says, and I quote, I trust the location is not a problem, Culper said into his hesitation. To be perfectly honest, an inner rim assignment is more than generous. I mean that for a wild space person like yourself, the inner rim is an incredible move upward. And I was thinking, and there you go. (laughs) You have shot yourself in the foot. And Eli, you know, if he didn't have alarm bells ringing before, they are going off uh, on volume 100 right now. (laughs) where he thinks to himself that he'd seen a lot of you know bigotry and bias from officers in the Imperial Academy and from Captain Rossi, but he wasn't expecting that from a government official. And now he's under a case. And he's asking for the real reason that this is that this opportunity is being presented to him. And as he looks the, to the door ahead, he kind of pieces together that Thrawn is being promoted to captain. 
and that they're trying to offer him a promotion to remove him from Thrawn's side. And he has hit one of Culper's nerves, and she says, and I quote, there are a few of us who aren't pleased by all the attention the alien is getting. His actions cost the Empire hundreds of thousands of credits worth of Tabana gas. And... Eli claps back saying that, yeah, he, he saved the crew, though. And Culpa responds, uh, kind of pointing out that three of them were aliens. And props to Eli here for responding, and I quote, what difference does that make? Yeah. I thought, damn, <laughs> like, that is what you want to hear from our guy Eli. And, like, I was so... I wasn't shocked, but I was just disgusted by just the racism and xenophobia yeah. that Culper was showing here. Where I'm just going to read this this next quote from her. The Empire's priority was to retrieve the Tabana. That was what was valuable. That was what a good Imperial officer should have focused on. Instead, he risked the lives of you and the other Blood Crow crew to rescue some aliens. I was just really pissed off reading that. Like, yeah. it, Props to Eli for standing up in the face of that, but it's just... It just made me mad. <laughs> it really shows the, the the dirty politics that the Imperials sort of have. The hatred towards aliens is just is ridiculous. It, they are treated as sort of vermin, aren't they? And they yeah yeah the way she speaks about them and that Thrawn saved them. It's it's completely not allowed in terms of her yeah. mind, and it really it really does show the hatred that the Imperials have. I think that in her mind, and probably in the mind of, of a lot of people with her on in the Imperial politics and maybe even high command, was their idea of a good Imperial officer in that situation is prioritizing money over the lives of non-humans. Where we all know, and thank God that Eli knows, what a real good officer would have done was exactly what Thrawn did. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, it doesn't matter whose lives he saved he, d- he doesn't look at the situation and weigh money over the lives of aliens where in eli's mind and he's so right the real good officer in that situation does the opposite of what this whole imperial idea of a good officer does yeah. and i think that's what separates thrawn and that's what separates eli from just from from the rest of the, those yeah. like the imperial elite it also shows that eli is come to terms with he is defending Thrawn he has come to the stage where he is looking out for him and doing the opposite of what pretty much I'm guessing 90% of Imperials think and it really shows his character development yeah it it really does because we'd wondered if he was presented with a situation to to rise to power just like all the other Imperials trying to climb the ladder I think we've got our answer now mm. that he is not going to play the same game according to the same rules that is probably what's expected of those climbing the imperial ladder which is good you know because <laughs> we know who the bad guys are we know who the good guys are I just I think it's very telling of of Eli knowing what the right ethical thing to do was yeah. so I was I was proud of him there. um proud moment man and He's defending Thrawn here, and he's realizing that even here, where he was presented with this opportunity, he's nothing more than just a tool in the Imperial game mm-hmm. to take yeah. down Thrawn, and, which is sad for him, like, even in this moment where he thinks, like, oh, wow, they're actually trying to help me. They're not. Yeah. But he turns her away, and uh, Thrawn returns, and they've gotten their new orders. You know, Eli was right that Thrawn was promoted to captain, and he's going to be the first officer aboard the Thunder Wasp, yeah. which is a light cruiser. And a, a brief aside, <laughs> he was promoted. But from the Blood Crow to the Thunder Wasp, I think that's kind of like a demotion, <laughs> like name-wise. <Yeah. laughs> Thunder Wasp, yeah. It's not, it's, I just wasn't impressed with that. It's like, not quite the sort of chilling name that you get from a Imperial ship. Yeah, I think like it just sounds like a high school mascot, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And some... coming out of the other end zone, we got the Thunder Wasp. So I'm like, no, no, that's not. <laughs> yeah. Do some cheerleading dances or something. <laughs> right, That's uh, maybe, that, maybe that'll be it. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, the Imperials have been so consistent about awesome names, and I just thought that was, uh, yeah, the Thunder Wasp, I don't know if I'm sold on that, so... <laughs> But Eli is still assigned to be Thrawn's aide with no promotion. I thought it was cool, though, that Thrawn said that he had recommended Eli for promotion Mm. in a combat station. So he's trying. He's trying to get Eli to rise with him 
but maybe it's just high command that seems to be the one neglecting Eli. You know, maybe part of Palpatine's game where Palpatine doesn't care about Thrawn's aid. He's just trying to get Thrawn mm. to raise through the ranks. Um, but I thought it was a little uh, pretty cool to see that Thrawn is actively trying to, to make the situation better for Eli, too. So the last scene of this chapter, uh, we find ourselves back with Arenda Price, and she is at a local citizen's assistance office. And she managed to find herself in, like, the most poorly staffed office around. <laughs> Even with Ascension Week, like, it's, and, and there's staff, like, uh, that maybe have the week off, it's still struggling with staffing. And so it's a perfect opportunity for her. And she manages to position herself in line to be helped out by this woman who she could tell just really didn't want to be there. Yeah. And I thought it was funny where she says that the woman's voice was, and I quote, more mechanical than that of some droids Arinda had worked with. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can actually <laughs> imagine it, can't you? Yeah. yeah, it's like anything, like think of something more monotone than, I don't know, K2SO or 3PO. <laughs> and it's, yeah, this woman, Nariba, I think is her name, yeah. managed to beat that. So she doesn't want to be here. Price is, is jumping in for the kill. So... She's telling Nariba that she's looking for a job. You know, she'd lost her job, looking for a place to stay as well. And throughout the whole conversation, Nariba is being rude to her and condescending, outrageously so. Where she's just looking down. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm imagining just kind of like a, you know, kind of like pointed nose, got some glasses <laughs> that she's just looking down at Price through, and it's uh, kind of like Monsters Inc. That that receptionist, oh, yeah, yeah, Monsters Inc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Nariba, my yeah. headcanon. <laughs> Yeah, so after that interaction with Nariba, Price walks straight to the supervisor's office and says, and I quote, My name is Arenda Price. You have a problem, Mr. Sinclair, and I have the solution. I just spoke with Nariba. She's not very good at her job. She's rude and insulting, and worst of all, she isn't helpful. Between you and me, she needs to be fired. <laughs> I just, I love that, just like the confidence and just straight to the point. Yeah. It, it, it sort of reminds me a bit of an action that Thrawn would take. I can just... You can see the sort of parallels there, where she just marches in, sort of demands that this useless person be fired, exactly. and just come in with all that confidence. It was quite impressive. It really was, and she didn't stop there, where <laughs> she's kind of giving her qualifications, because the, the supervisor is taken by surprise, it's like, <laughs> as as would anyone, I guess, yeah. where, you know, uh, being confronted with that, and... Price says, and I quote, I've dealt with angry landlords, angry tenants, reluctant employers, and panicky job seekers. Also, union bosses, would-be union bosses, striking miners, strike-breaking miners, angry men and women who wanted to tear up my office, low-level criminals, high-level criminals, and politicians from the rawest hack to the most entrenched fossil. Mm-hmm. She stopped for air. <laughs> just like, Price's stock yeah. has just soared incredibly. <laughs> Yeah, you can you can imagine her just blurting that out with with one breath. It's it's just the perfect image of a confident woman that knows what she wants, and she knows exactly what she wants in this situation, which is so great. Uh, and you know, she's offering to work for free at that office to prove that she can take Nariba's position, but also pretty much beat out anyone else in that office yeah. who thinks they can be a better assistant or or whatnot than than Price. So. I think like we've kind of determined Price being kind of the political throne in this mm-hmm. book where she's, yeah, got that confidence, marching in, she knows what she wants, and right now maybe she's getting her mojo back. Yeah, I think also after having the awful time that she's had, to then walk in with all that confidence and everything, it really shows the strength of her character and that she still even though she's been put down by all these people, that she she knows what she wants and she wants to get back in control and get a job and make her way up the social ladder. Yeah, props to Price here where, like you said, she's fallen, but she knows how to get up and jump right back into the game. Yeah. So very interested to see how that progresses with Price. So that finishes up uh, chapter 11. What a ride it's been. <laughs> Is there any any other thoughts you have about the chapter before we move on to chapter 12? No, I don't think so. We covered most bits. All right. Yeah, there was a lot to cover, <laughs> but it was, it was good. So I will read my uh, summary for chapter 12, and we can dive right in. Aboard the light cruiser Thunder Wasp, Thrawn, Eli, and the ship's commander, Alfred Chino, have thwarted an iridium smuggling scheme. As the prisoners are being processed, Thrawn tells Commander Chino that he has more Clone Wars antiques on the way. 
Thrawn and Eli analyze a list of prices of Clone Wars equipment from the past three years and discover that someone has been mass-purchasing Vulture droids in recent months. Thrawn and Eli suspect Night Swan may be using them to plan his next move. As the Thunder Wasp travels to the Umbaran system to confront insurgents linked to Night Swan, Thrawn studies Umbaran art to gain a tactical advantage over their opponents. The Thunder Wasp enters the Umbaran system and is joined by the ISD Foremost. Choosing not to wait for reinforcements, the Foremost's Admiral delivers an ultimatum to the insurgents. Suddenly, hundreds of Vulture droids appear to confront the task force. We got ourselves a shorter chapter, yeah. <laughs> but it, it ends on a pretty good cliffhanger. Yeah, so um, let's let's dive right in. So they are aboard the Thunder Wasp, and we can gather that they have been for some time because Eli's reflecting on their time with Commander Chino, where I got a lot of Virgilio vibes from Chino, yeah. where he's this old school officer. It kind of took him a while to get accustomed to Thrawn, but he had an open mind and was able to eventually see the the, the value that Thrawn could bring to the ship. Yeah. Where, you know, Eli was kind of afraid that he would be prejudiced or patronizing, but he's turned out to, to be kind of like, you know, Virgilio risen from, <laughs> risen from the dead, kind of. Yeah, no, he's uh, really sort of takes Thrawn in his stride and sort of understands him, gets to know how he works and everything. And... You could even say he comes to respect him, and it instantly makes you sort of like the character of Chino a lot more. Yeah, there is a respect factor there, where, you know, once you get to know Thrawn and see the value they can bring, like, you, you can't not, or you shouldn't. Mm. So props to Chino being, you know, having a good head on his shoulders, yeah. which, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a nice relief after being exposed to, you know, Culper and Moff Gotti and all that. So... And, and Eli's reflecting, and, and it seems over the time that's passed since they've been on the Thunder Wasp, Eli's reflecting on his time there and how it used to be annoying, how he had to explain how Thrawn managed to pull off all these brilliant plans. And now, and I quote, Eli was so used to it that it was almost fun, rather like being the assistant of an illusionist who knew the secrets of how the tricks worked. And maybe this is a turning point with Eli and Thrawn's relationship. Yeah, I definitely think that it is. The way that he has to <laughs> explain to everyone that what Thrawn's doing and he gets sort of a kick off it is really shows that he has come to learn what Thrawn does and then is able to let everyone know how he does it, but in terms of words that everyone understands. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it, the connection between them just seems a lot stronger now because I think it mentions that they've been on the Thunder Wasp for a, nearly a year or a year or so so they really have had a lot of time together and they've definitely become closer and had a stronger connection because of this. I guess we can assume if Eli is able to see the fun in describing how Thrawn does what he does mm. that you know first this is a, a learning experience for Eli where he's able to break down the plans and see how they work for himself which is obviously going to grow his own tactical understanding but it's that he's able to instead of feeling this annoyance and and kind of like grudgingness towards Thrawn about all right you know let me kind of break down what he did again he's he's starting to see the value in it which I think is is great so I I would totally agree that there's a step forward for yeah. them both which is fun because they have busted these smugglers who were smuggling this metal called iridium in these shells from like this local mollusk species where they had like emptied the shells of the mollusk meat mm -hmm. and stuffed them with iridium and the way that Thrawn had figured it out was that the like a local water predator was drawn to those boats in particular because of like all the meat that was being dumped out from them and Chino's saying oh but that's, that's actually really simple when you think about it and you know most things are in hindsight um, mm -hmm. but I think yeah. that kind of emphasized how it takes a special set of eyes to see the significant and the important from from the, the simple what others would consider to be simple yeah so yeah Thrawn lets Chino know that, that he's got some more Clone Wars antiques he's got a piece of a buzz droid and a section uh, of a vulture droid which is nice I thought that was a good yeah, callback like the, like the Clone Wars callbacks yeah yeah and apparently Thrawn does too because Chino asks if something from that era interests Thrawn and Thrawn responds very curiously and I quote in point of fact sir everything about that era interests me 
And I think that's really interesting. Maybe it's got something to do with his connection to Anakin Skywalker. Like, mm. why does the Clone Wars era interest Thrawn so much? I thought that was really interesting. It does, yeah, it really hints that there was there was something going on at that time. But obviously, we don't really know what it is. And I guess we'll we'll wait and see to find out. So Thrawn, you know, they're walking towards the bridge. He and Eli are walking there. And Thrawn hands Eli this data pad, and he's amassed all these prices of different Clone Wars equipment from the past three years, and he's asking Eli to turn on like his shipping mode and find out what is interesting about that list. And Eli's analyzing it, he's in his zone, and he notices that someone has been purchasing a lot of vulture droids, and they determine that the only reason you can use vulture droids is for combat, because... They know that there's no dunium in vulture droids, so they're being you know, someone's preparing for for a fight. Um, and Thrawn also brings up this kind of side project, I guess, that he's had Eli on, where he's asking if uh, Eli's made any progress in analyzing the, the the warship program to see why so much dunium is being required. And Eli said that he couldn't find a project that's been sucking that much dunium for the markets. And my thought is, has Eli just not seen the movies? <laughs> it's like so obvious to us. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly missing a big thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I just, I love all these small callbacks to the, or hints rather. I love these yeah. small hints at the Death Star. But yeah, they, they are figuring that someone is using the vulture droids for combat and... Eli says, and I quote, it takes a pretty confident person to think he can beat modern turbo lasers with blaster cannons, though. And Thrawn shrugged, I could. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the best part is, again, he's not trying to be funny. He's just being matter of fact. And I think that's what makes it funnier. (laughs) It's just the, his sort of chiss ways that he just says these things, just the, the confident things that sort of make him seem sort of cocky. Yeah, he's yeah. not thinking of it like that. He's just being truthful. Yeah, he's just being honest. <laughs> <laughs> he's just saying it how it is. Like, yeah, I could, I could do that. He he knows what he can do, and you know, it's just funny to see the little discrepancies between our you know human expressions and then Thrawn. Where yeah, he's he's just saying it how it is. <laughs> so they're they're thinking that Night Swan might be related to the mass purchases and Vulture droids, and Thrawn is noting that. This is possible because Night Swan has been specializing in clever strategy. He's used old technology and weapons that no one's really expected to face, which is fair because I don't think anyone would be expecting to face some vulture droids. And that he's also been requesting payment in Iridium. So that would probably tie him to the case that they just busted where the, uh, the prisoners had even admitted that the guy who set up the scheme had told them to disperse the meat over their entire path so as to not draw the attention of the water predators to the boats. But then the, the smugglers had told them that would be too much work. And I think that further separates the people willing to go the extra mile for a flawless plan like Thrawn and Night Swan from those who who kind of like shrug away when it's, oh, that's just too much work, isn't it? Yeah, they don't see the point in it when actually it's sort of a, a small detail in a very sophisticated plan. Exactly, and, and just very similar strategies between Night Swan and Thrawn, which is kind of scary if, you know, if you're seeing what Thrawn is capable of and knowing that there's someone on the other side yeah. who is also capable of, of, I don't know if exactly at Thrawn level, but... You know he's he's keeping up to up to yeah. step with Thrawn. Thrawn is meeting his match. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we we can we can assume so. The next scene takes us to Thrawn's cabin, where the Thunder Wasp is on the way to um- Umbara uh, because the smugglers had mentioned um, that the the guy behind the plot had mentioned that world. So they're gonna see if they're or confront the insurgents there, and we get our first insight into the importance of artwork to Thrawn. Yeah, it had been hinted at before, mentioned a couple times, but now we actually get his thought process behind it. And I thought it w- this was such a great set of uh, passages where he calls it this invaluable tool to him that in in his cabin, he's got all these data cards uh, that are showing these like holograms of art pieces that are interactive. And some of them are mobile and others are, you know, sculptures and flats. This is kind of like his own little private museum. Right. Um, (laughs) But I like this quote here. It says the other Chiss didn't understand. They never had. He'd been asked innumerable times 
how he was able to build such detailed tactical knowledge from such obscure and insignificant ingredients. To Thrawn, nothing in a species' art was obscure or insignificant. All threads tied together, all the brushstrokes spoke to him. All the light curves told the story of their creator. What did you think about that whole passage? Yeah, that's I really like that because it's obviously from the Legends trilogy, we know that he enjoys his artwork. And going into detail as to how he is able to work out these tactics and work out sort of the culture just from artwork is amazing. And initially, I assumed that it could have been a chist thing. But obviously in this passage we hear that it's clearly just Thrawn and that the other chists that he knows don't understand how he's able to do it. And most people never will. It's clearly a technique that he's learnt and come up with over many, many years of searching and looking at different artworks from different cultures. Yeah, it's kind of like his own artwork in a, in a way, his own art form of analyzing the art, which I, I thought that was really interesting how, because like you, I had thought that might have been a Chiss thing, but it shows again how Thrawn is different than the other Chiss, mm-hmm. where first he was different where he was fine with preemptive strikes, and that set him apart from the Chiss, but now it's his whole relationship with artwork and being able to deduce military strategy from it where I think that's pretty cool, how it's just setting him apart on this, this whole nother level yeah. where he's able to see... How, what others think to be quote-unquote insignificant and, and find their significance and find that meaning. And I like this next thought of, from, from him, and I quote, Artists were individuals, but they were also products of their culture and history and philosophy. The fundamental pattern of a species could be sketched, then drawn, then fully flushed out. Most important of all, the relationship among art, culture, and military doctrine could be deduced. And what could be deduced could be countered. Because we'd seen his appreciation of artwork and him using art in, in the Legends trilogy and a couple of times in, in this book so far, where he's able to deduce things from artwork. And I had always wondered, you know, the thought process behind it. You know, I, I didn't really understand it, where he can just, like, look at a sailing warship and determine something from it that no one else would, would see as significant. Yeah. But I, I just thought there was such a rich set of paragraphs where we finally get to see why artwork is so important to him and i th- i just think it's it's so good um yeah. it's a, it just makes him even more impressive which if that was even possible yeah it, make, it just shows that his sort of the way his mind works is so different to anybody else and he's just he's just one step ahead of everyone yeah and he's just able to take this, what a lot of people see as like enjoyment or status symbol, and he's able to just melt it down to understanding their their every move and their thought processes. I thought that was so impressive. So his thoughts are interrupted because Eli walks into the cabin. Apparently the bridge had been trying to reach him for 10 minutes, <laughs> so he must have been completely zoned yeah. out <laughs> uh, studying his Umbaran art because they have entered the Umbaran system and the ISD Foremost has joined them. And I thought that was an upgrade from the Thunder Wasp. You know, Foremost is much more on track yeah. from uh, <laughs> an Imperial naming company. classic name that you, you would expect, yeah. And it, it seems that the Foremost Admiral, Carlu Gendling, is also more in line with the traditional, you know, what we'd expect from Imperial Admirals yeah. because, uh, you know, he had sent a few of his ships as part of his little fleet to deal with another issue. And instead of waiting for them to return, he's confident that they can handle that situation as is with the Thunder Wasp, with the Foremost, and I think he has a couple of other Corvettes with him. And Chinu kind of confirms that arrogance where he says, and I quote, he also has a somewhat overinflated view of himself and his capabilities. And I think that sounded like a lot of Imperial officers that we hear about. You've just described an Imperial officer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like this generic um, description they, that can yeah. apply to everyone. If they were ever cloned, that's what would go in the machine. Yeah. Yes. And a further part where it says his voice is strong and proud, carrying both challenge and contempt very imperial (laughs) just have that description and just copy and paste copy and paste so gendling has given the insurgents an hour to comply with his ultimatum you know to surrender or they will i think commence an orbital bombardment you know send in troops 
basically just wipe him out. Mm. And after he gives it, they've all kind of stepped back. All right, you know, they got an hour. They're probably going to comply. It'll just follow, you know, as, as usual, send a few squadrons down. And then 400 vulture droids <laughs> fly out from one of Umbara's moons and are flying right toward them. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, 400. <laughs> They're like, 200, 300, no, 400 vulture droids. I'm like, wow, that that is... Um, yeah, what was supposed to be routine is now very much not. You can sort of picture Eli just looking at Thrawn being like, you could probably tell this was going to happen, couldn't you? Considering their previous conversations. And I just thought it was amazing. You can just imagine the 400 of them just swarming in. It sort of gives the intro of um, Revenge of the Sith, where they're yeah, all sort of flying so over. And I just love the way that it uh, Zahn ended it as well. He He just said... It was to do with the droids, and he just says they are vulture droids. It was just a great sort of Star Wars moment there. I just really enjoyed that. Yeah, because when they had seen these objects flying out, they didn't know what they were, and then, yep, vulture (laughs) droids, which, I mean, especially 400 of them, because that's, it's just menacing. That's a a lot. Very much like a a flock of vultures just just zooming towards you, so a very ominous, uh, suspenseful way to... And the chapter. Yeah. Very intrigued to see what'll what'll happen next. Which you'll be back for that episode as well. So yep. we'll get to unpack that <laughs> together. <laughs> um, Cannot wait. This is part one of uh, of two parts of uh, Stern being a, a guest. So we'll get to break down that uh, that whole next sequence together next time. So that does end chapter twelve. And uh, do you have any uh, thoughts to close before we close out? Um, I was just gonna say the way that. Zahn writes and is able to incorporate other aspects of Star Wars is just amazing like the link to um, Umbara with that's from the Clone Wars the Vulture droids from the prequel trilogy and the Clone Wars it's just the links to the Death Star with the thing is he's just able to compact it into this into the book that's sort of nothing to do with that and I thought it was just it's just very well done Definitely, because it's both taking a storyline that we are not familiar with at all and making it relevant to what we are comfortable with yeah. and things that we already know. Because like, I really appreciate it. Like you said, the, the link to Umbara and having those you know, mentions of Grand Moff Tarkin and having Palpatine uh, get introduced early on and hints of the Death Star. It's taken all these elements that we know and are comfortable with and, and placing them you know strategically in, in this story to make you know to, to let us know yeah this is relevant to the larger story as a whole yeah. which i really i think yeah like you said he's been doing a really great job with that i appreciate them i hope the the readers and listeners do as well just these callbacks uh, that that we can all appreciate as, as star wars yeah. fans as a whole props to timothy's <laughs> on but Sturm, thank you so much for coming on this episode man i really enjoyed breaking this yeah. down with you thank you thank so you much. very much for having me yeah and we will break down the next two chapters as well looking forward to that and listeners thank you so much for listening if you are interested in following along on social media with the podcast feel free to give us a follow on twitter at outer rim read pod and feel free to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts if you listen on apple Podcasts, feel free to give a good review if you're enjoying the show It helps other Apple Podcast users to find Outer Rim Reads, so I'd very much appreciate a good review on Apple Podcasts. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is edited by Andrew Geha, it is produced by Andrew Geha, and we will be back in two weeks with Episode 7. So until then, sit back and enjoy! I know a lot of sports are cancelled right now, but check that TV behind Kenobi and Skywalker. You might find a game of Nunaball.